dive right into it. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend our time tonight. As you're turning there, I just want to say welcome back to those of you that are regular attenders. Welcome to those of you that are first-time attenders with us. Uh, my name is Cody. I serve as the worship and college pastor here. And if you need anything while you're here, if you want to get connected in any way, we have a few options for you. One, of course, as you checked in, that's a great way for us to, to know your info, be able to send you, get you part of our group text and everything that we send out every week. Uh, two, you can get a hold of any of the people that are wearing a name tag on their shirt. That means that they're a leader of some form in the ministry, whether it's C groups or leadership development or something like that. So you can find one of them. They'll answer any questions that you have. Or three, you can come up and see me after the message. Um, I'm up here at the end of each message. If you need prayer, if you need to talk about anything, or if you have any questions about the ministry, I'd love to get you connected in that way as well. Like I said, I, I had you turn to the book of Philippians because that's where we are. We're in a series in the book of Philippians. We just begun it a few weeks ago, and we're in our third message on it together. Let me remind you of some of the things that we've covered. We started in the first couple verses of the book, and we learned the context of Philippians. We learned when it was written. We learned who wrote it. The Apostle Paul aided with Timothy, and we learned that they wrote it to the Philippians, the, the church in Philippi that, that Paul was actually there, helped them plant, was there when they saw some of their first converts, and he has a deep relationship with them. And we see that Paul is in prison, and he's writing this letter to them. And what we know is that he's near the end of his life. This is sometime within the last year or two of his life. He's ending his ministry. He knows it's coming. We're going to have more of that in the next few chapters. He knows the end of his life is near. And so he's writing these words of encouragement to the Philippian church. That was the first week. Context. Last week, we had a message called, A Lot of Questions. And I gave you a lot of questions to ask, to see if you are a partner in the gospel and if you are a partaker of grace. We covered Paul's um, feeling towards the Philippians on them being connected with him in this partnership, the gospel of grace. And, and I encourage you and challenge you to ask yourself these questions to see if you really knew Christ in the first place and to see if you really partook in the grace that he has to offer. I pray that you've had an opportunity to look at those questions, that you will have continued going back to them. And if that's something you didn't hear and you want to hear, let me know afterwards. We have a YouTube page and stuff like that. I'll direct you to it if you really want to get through it. But that's where we've been the last couple times. And that puts us still in Philippians chapter 1. But near the end of the chapter now, we've got just two more messages in this. And we find ourselves in verses 12 to 18. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I'm going to go ahead and read it. You follow along. Paul continues and says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let me pray for our time in the Word together. Lord, we just read your Word. I pray that as we talk about it together tonight, that as we dive into it, Lord, that you would just expound upon it what you desire for us to see. So many ways that we can learn from your Word, Lord. The one that we see tonight, Lord, would you let it be impactful for your kingdom? Lord, would what we learn last for all eternity? Would it glorify your name? Father, would you speak through your word like only you can tonight? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so tonight I'm calling this message the gospel lens. Let me explain to you why I chose this wording. And it starts with a discussion on worldview. A discussion on worldview. And I want you to take a moment before I show you the definition of worldview. And I want you to think, what is your understanding of that word? If I were to ask you to write a definition of what worldview is, take a minute and just think about what you might think it is so that you might understand it. Collect your thoughts. All right, worldview, as described by the Oxford Dictionary, is this. It's on the slide here. Worldview is our particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. A particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. Do you get that? It's a way or the way that you view or interact with the world. It's the way you see things. The way you understand things. The filter you put things through. And there are lots of things that impact our worldview. The place that we're born. The region. The language that we speak. The family that we're born into, the relationships we have, whether they're there or they're not. Friends, the close relationships that we have throughout life impact how we view life. The community that we're born into, the poverty level of that community. Our education level impacts how we view the world. What we've learned impacts how we view the world. Our age I mean, there's a reason why the, the statement, okay, boomer, exists, right? Because it's a, it is our culture's way of acknowledging that a different generation might think differently or value different things than our generation might or the generation under us might, right? Like we acknowledge that there's different worldviews in age or current events, things that have happened in our area or our life or our country that impact our worldview and so on. So let me give you a, a simple and personal example of how worldview can impact you, right? Like, I could bro go and, and break down and go into a lot of, like, political and socioeconomic things, but I don't really want to do that. I want to just get as practical as possible and talk to you about one of the real ways that having, just having a different experience in life can impact a relationship that you have. So I'll tell you a little bit about a reoccurring argument that Brittany, my wife, and I uh, had at the beginning of our marriage, and it all revolves around the word sorry. So we all actually have different feelings about the word sorry. Let me explain to you mine. So I came from a household in which my father wasn't around much. And when he was around, if him and my mom got into an argument, he was a cross-country truck driver, he would simply just storm out, leave, hop in the truck, and I wouldn't see him for three or four months again. There was never, resolu never any resolution, 
never any talking about it, right? Like he would just leave. He'd come back and things would be fine in a few months. So you might understand that I never heard the word sorry. It, it didn't happen much in my life. It wasn't something that was said. You just sort of forgot about it. Brittany, on the other hand, she grew up with a completely different household. I'll let her tell her story someday. But what you need to know is that sorry was said a lot. It was said a lot, but it was meant very little. There's very little action to follow through with the sorries that happened in her household. So you can imagine when we got into some of our first fights as a married couple, I would say sorry because it means so much to me. Because I never heard it, and I know that word can do so much. It can portray what I'm feeling, the regret that I have. Now, we have other things, like we ask for forgiveness, like we repent to one another. There's lots of things there. But for me, that word meant a lot. But for Brittany, it didn't mean a lot. So that's just a quick example of how we were raised in two different ways. We have two different worldviews when it comes to the dynamics in a relationship. And all of a sudden, we didn't even know it until we were already married. And we get into an argument in which the word comes out and it has completely different meanings for us. Small example, but I want you thinking through those things. The way that, the, the way that we're raised, the things that happen to us, our world, you shapes how we interact with one another and how we value the things around us, right? So that's an idea of what worldview is, but I want to give you a few more examples because we're talking about worldview in a new way tonight. And so I want to say that the worldview is like a lens on a camera. Right? If, you, if you've ever seen you know, a fancier camera that's able to change lenses like DSLR or something like that, you'll know that as you put on a new lens, you can view things in a different way, whether it's zoomed in differently, whether it's shaped differently. Sometimes that lens can cause you to see things in a distorted way, like a fisheye lens. I have a picture up here real quick. This is a fisheye lens, if you've ever wondered what that's called. As you can see, it causes the world to look differently. Even like all the little stalks of grass and stuff that are there, in this picture, they look curved, right? It looks like it's bubbled towards you. But in reality, that's not how it looks. But the only difference is a new lens was put on the same camera. So you can see how a different lens would affect how you view the world. Sometimes we have a worldview that causes those things, allows us to, we can see what other people see. See, like there's a bee there. There's a dandelion there, but it looks completely different than what somebody else might be looking at. Our worldview can also help us to see things more clearly, just like a lens can. Like this picture that's coming up of a lens filter. So this is the filter that goes onto a lens. And if you look without it there, you'll see that everything, it's called blown out, right? It's overexposed. You can't see any of the detail in the picture around. You can't see the true color of the grass. You, I mean, if you look over to the right, you can barely even see that there's water over there, right? Like you may not know that that's some kind of creek or, or river, whatever it might be. But when you put on the correct filter on the lens, things become more clear. You can see what truly is there. Maybe you can see the appropriate colors or the textures. Our worldview is a lens that we put on to perceive the world. And in the passage we are in tonight, we see Paul looking at his situation through a very specific worldview. And that is the worldview of the gospel. 
And that's why I'm calling it the gospel lens. Because my challenge to you tonight as we read this passage and go through it is that you would apply and put on the gospel lens of your life. That you would look at the entire world through the gospel. In our college ministry, we have very specific wording for that. You've heard it several times. We want to create disciples, glorify God by making disciples that are centered, committed, and confident. That centered word, centered on Christ, the whole point is this worldview. We want you to be disciples that view the world with Christ at the very center. And you filter everything in light of the fact that Christ died for you and saved you and redeemed you. And so that's my challenge for you tonight is to center your life on Christ and put on the gospel lens. But let's see exactly what that looks like in Paul's situation here. So here's the first point. These are going to be spelled out this way. The first point is through the gospel lens we see that hard times have gospel purpose. When we're looking at the world through the gospel lens we see that hard times have gospel purpose. Look again at verses 12 to 14 with me. Just look at it. I'll read it again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has really happened to me, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the word by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the hard time that we see Paul going through, we're talking about being through a hard time, is that he's in prison. You see that there. You see it again in verse 7. If you're to look up just a little bit in your Bible, we covered that last week. Like he says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel you about this way um, because you're partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. Like so Paul's established he's in prison. That's a hard thing to go through. That's the point in his life that he's in. And like I said, what we know about his imprisonment already is that it's near the end of his life. In fact, as far as we know, from what we can understand of his life, and based on historical records, Paul was most likely martyred, that is, killed for the cause of Christ. He was most likely martyred within the year of writing this letter. We'll get more on that in chapter 2. But imagine how Paul would feel right now. Now, it's hard to in some ways, because he's Paul, right? He's the Apostle Paul. We have a lot of respect for him. But he's also a man. And this isn't Paul's first imprisonment. This is at least his third imprisonment. Right? Shipwrecked at least twice. Imprisoned at least three times from what we know. Near death several times. And you can imagine the times in your life that you have gone through something hard. That something has happened to you. And it's not the first time that it's happened to you. And you can imagine... The times in which that's happened, and it's just beat you down even more. The thought of like, I'm going through this again? This is happening for a third time in my life? The frustrations that come with that? Like, that is human instinct, to be frustrated at the circumstances around us. To be beaten down, disappointed, weary because of the things that we have to go through. Not only once but multiple times in our life. So let's put that on the shelf, understand Paul might be experiencing that, but let's also talk about the fact that he's old. He's old for his time. He's reaching his 60s. That's a pretty long time to live in that age. How would you want to spend the end of your life? 
Do you imagine spending the last five years of your life in prison with no freedom? Do you see your life heading that way? You can imagine it might be a little discouraging to know the end of your days might just be sitting in a cell or imprisoned in a house. So hopefully I've built up for you what it would be like to have a hardship like this, something similar. And hopefully I've built up for you how hard it would be to act in any other way unless you have the gospel, unless you know the one who has died for you, who has redeemed your sins, who has reconciled you, God, and, and given you a joy that's greater than any circumstance you can ever no, given you a peace that goes beyond all understanding, given you a joy that can't be explained. Unless you have that, you are the person that's beaten down and depressed time and time again of things like this. But what Paul helps us see is that through the lens of the gospel, we can see the purpose in the hard things that we go through. Now, we already said, like, the hard thing that Paul is going through is the fact that he's in prison. But we see the purpose there, too, right? And the purpose is twofold. If you're looking at that text there, there's two reasons that he really gives for why he's going through this. And the first one is to advance the gospel through the imperial guard. Like, the people watching over him in the house of imprisonment. Like, prisons looked a little bit different back then. But overall, you can imagine roughly the same thing to know that the people standing guard over him, the people that were living in the houses near him, the guard houses and stuff like that. Like that's the imperial guard. And what he's saying is that the purpose of him being imprisoned is that they're all going to hear about Christ. They're all going to get to know who Jesus is. So that's the first thing. And the second thing that we see is that it gives other people the boldness to proclaim the gospel. Paul's going through this hard time, and because he has the gospel, because he's looking at the world through the gospel, he's able to see that what he's going through has a kingdom-building purpose. And that is not only that other people around him would come to know Jesus, but those that know Jesus would preach Jesus all the more. So how exactly does that happen? Like, it happens because of who Paul is, right? Because he loves Jesus, he knows Jesus, he believes Jesus has died for him. He's seen the fruit of that in his life. And so everybody around him is going to hear it too, because that's what a Christian does. A Christian sings God's praises, praises God for who he is, and the people around that Christian know why they are a Christian, know why they believe what they believe. So, first of all, that's happening because of who Paul is but why is it that others are emboldened by him? Because you would think, like, if me and my friend are doing something together, we have the same cause, and he gets in trouble for it, my first thought is discouragement. Right? My first thought is, like, why would I keep on doing it if it sends me to jail? Because my friend just got sent to jail. But that's not the way the gospel works. The way the gospel works, and we see time and time again throughout history, is that when God's people are persecuted, God's people stand up. When God's people are persecuted, the church prevails. Because people look upon Paul like this and they say, if Paul can preach Jesus while he's in chains, then how dare I not preach Jesus while I'm free? If Paul can preach when he's seen the end of his life come at him and he knows that his life is at stake, how can I not preach when I'm sitting here in my household eating dinner with my family? 
That is the type of boldness that Paul is giving over to them. And that's the purpose that God has given him the blessing to see. Because of the gospel in his life. So his hard time had a purpose. And I don't need to give very many examples for you to see the times in which you've gone through something hard. And even if you didn't understand it in the moment, you have seen the purpose for it afterwards. Like many of you know my story. I'm not going to get into all the details, but you know that if Brittany and I had never gone through infertility, we never would have adopted our three older kids. Right? We never would have had that beauty happen. Those of you that know how I ended up here at Cormdale, like if one of my close friends hadn't died, that never would have set all the events in motion that would have brought me to be the pastor here at Corumdale. It felt hard in the moment, but those are the moments that the Lord used to show me his purpose in my life. And my prayer for you, and what I want to give you just a chance, just a moment to pray for, is not that you would just see the purpose in the things that you go through, but that you would be encouraged by them, that they would bring you joy, that you would be press on to continue, and to give you a moment to just thank God that you have been able to have the blessing of knowing the purpose of the hard times that you've gone through. That's one of the beauties of the gospel. That's what we see right here. Paul is blessed to know why he's going through something that's difficult. He's blessed to know the purpose. And I want to give you a moment right now, just to yourself, to pray to God, and either pray that he would continue to reveal purpose in your life right now, or to just thank him. Just thank him for the ways that he has revealed purpose. I'll give you, I'll give you 30 seconds. Just take it right now, and then we'll continue. Yes, Lord. Lord, allow us the blessing and honor to understand the purpose of our hard times. Lord, allow us the blessing and honor of seeing your fruit played out. Lord, keep us encouraged by this passage right here with Paul. That he was able to see so clearly what you were doing in his life. I pray the same for us, Lord. I pray we would see you move and we, and we would just be in awe and worship of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So let's keep on going to the text. So Paul, after talking about how others have been encouraged to preach more boldly because of his imprisonment, like he's talking about their preaching, he then has something to say about those that are preaching, right? And if you look at verse 15 there, he's like, speaking of preaching, pretty much, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others preach from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here's what we see about the gospel lens here. The gospel lens, through it we see that godly actions can have sinful motivations. Through the gospel lens we see that godly actions can have sinful motivations. This needs to be for us a very stunning and sobering reality. Because the gospel lens reveals and it shows us that godly things can be done and godly purposes can be achieved but can come from sinful motivations. It means that you can't approve of yourself just because God used you. You can't approve of yourself just because God did something good from it. You can't justify yourself just because you saw something good happen 
from it. Because this, that's why this is a stunning reality. Because this passage shows us that you can preach the gospel and still be wrong about your motivation in wanting to do it. That Christ can be preached and you can be sinful in it. It's sobering because accountability on this is hard. It is hard to be accountable to your motivations. It is hard to have someone keep you accountable to your motivations. And why is that? It's, it's because we can't rely on people per, how people perceive us. We can't rely on how people see our actions and what they assume that means in our heart because they can't see the heart. Man can't see the heart. Like if you were with us when you were going through our King David series, you remember the passage in King David where it's talking about like David's being anointed and Samuel's there and he's working through. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of a stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Guys, I can only trust and pray. I can only trust and pray that when I preach things to you, when we read God's word together, I can only trust that you're not just changing your actions, but that God is actually doing heart work in you and that you're humble enough to allow him to do it. Because it, it's impossible for me even as your pastor, even as someone that spends a lot of time with you, it's impossible for me to truly know what's going on in your heart. I can only know based on the looks that you give me, on the actions you take, and the words that you speak. I can only make presumptions based on those actions, but I can never truly know your heart. I can't fully and truly keep you accountable the way that God can and the way that God does like at some point when you come in early to help set up or you stay late to help tear down a community event like i can only trust that it's out of a sincere desire to serve the lord and not because you just want to look good or important even our leaders in this ministry whether they lead a c group or community time or leadership development like i can only trust that what they are doing is using their gifts because they want to glorify god and not just seem authoritative and well put together I can never truly know because only God can know. Because God can look at the heart. And in fact, the same is true about me, right? I could preach this message right here about you looking at your heart and letting the Lord work in it. And even right now, I could be preaching it to look like a good preacher, to look like someone that's important, to feel important and loved because I'm helping change your lives. I could do it because I want to be valued. I could do it because I want people to know my name. And you would have no idea because I would be speaking the same words to you. Only you can trust that I am doing things to honor the Lord and to preach his word. Do you see what I mean? It's impossible for us to know the heart, not the way that God knows it. And so our application from this clearly is to constantly be checking yourself. 
to constantly be checking your motivations, the reason that you do things, asking yourself, why did I do that? What was I hoping to achieve in it? What was I hoping to get out of it? What was the desired outcome? Like we ask our kids that all the time. Like when our kids lie to us and we're like sitting down, the first thing I ask is, what were you hoping would happen? What were you hoping you would get by lying? Because that's what we need to understand is where our motivation was and why we were doing what we were doing. Because the gospel and the lens of the gospel teaches us that even the godliest of actions like preaching the gospel can have sinful motivations. And so what we see from Paul here is that that is a reality in which we have to exist and the gospel gives us the lens to understand that that's a reality. And only the gospel can give us the lens to understand not only that it's reality, but that God can change it. Guys, that's the hope in this application. I don't want you just sitting in despair because you're like, I suck as a human. Like, I don't want to do godly things for good reasons, right? I want you sitting in this thinking like, you know what? Thank God that he gives me the lens to see how awful I am. But thank God that he gives me the way for that to change. And that's to rely on Christ and seek him and be in his word and know him and walk with him and abide in him. If you want to know more about that, read John 15. Come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about how to abide in Christ and how to let that lens apply to your life. So that's what we see in the second point. And our last point, wrapping up here tonight, is not only do we, through the gospel lens, see hard times have gospel purpose. Through the gospel lens, we see godly actions can have sinful motivations. But through the gospel lens, we see we can rejoice in any situation. We see we can rejoice in any situation. Look at me, verse 18 there. After talking about this reality that happens that he can see through the gospel, Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul, at the beginning of this verse, he asks a question, right? It's a rhetorical question. He says, what then? Meaning, so how am I to respond to this? People are preaching Christ for good reasons and bad reasons. How am I to respond to this? And then he answers this question. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is looking at this situation through the gospel lens. And when he evaluates it in the light of the gospel, he's a man who comes with joy to the situation. Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel in our lives brings us joy. And if you don't believe me, you can highlight it, go back to it later. Galatians 5, many of you are going to be familiar with it. Galatians 5, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. I know you guys were finishing the song, so I at least got to like go through it, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, part of it, joy. When we are saved by Christ, when we are given his spirit to live within us, one of the things that comes with that spirit, with the Holy Spirit, is joy in all circumstances. 
joy despite circumstances like in First Peter. I'm just giving you verses. You can study later, right? That's the goal. Go and study these things. Spend time in the Word with God, right? First Peter 1, 6, he's talking, Peter's talking to the people that have been dispersed, and he says, in this, in the things that they're going through, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved. Let me ask you, how can you rejoice and grieve at the same time? You can because of the gospel. Because you can see the hard times, see the purpose of them, and rejoice that God is working in them, right? Or another famous passage, James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The expectation is that if you have the gospel, if you have the spirit, you rejoice and you have joy. So we can see it if you're looking at the lens of the gospel. You can have joy in all circumstances. But how do you do it? At the end of the day, how do you do it? How do you have joy? It's hard sometimes, right? Sometimes emotions take over. Sometimes things are overwhelming. Sometimes we're isolated. How do we have joy? Well, there's a billion different answers to that because there's a billion different nuances to the gospel. I want to give you one. Okay, I want to give you one section you can look up. If you're wondering where I got this, there's this amazing resource. There's lots of amazing resources, but there's one that I love to go to, especially when talking about joy. That's DesiringGod.org. DesiringGod.org, if you're interested in it, go to it. Yeah, I literally went there. I typed in, how can I find joy? And there are over 2,000 articles on how to find joy, all rooted in Scripture, all found in Scripture, all based in what the gospel has to say. And this was just one article. I'm going to read for him. And that what I consider this, this is what we're wrapping up right here. I consider this a pep talk. Right? There's lots of practicals. I can tell you journal, see the ways God's worked in your life over time, all these ways you can be practical about having joy. But I want to just give you a little bit of a pep talk. And it's with eight points. You can write them down if you want. Otherwise, I'll screenshot them and send them to you somehow. Or you can just go on DesiringGod.org, look them up yourself, right? Here's the first one. Part of the first part of the pep talk if you want joy, you need to remember that before the creation of the world, God chose you for his own. Before the creation of the world, God chose you. That should bring you joy. Part two, you need to know and remember he predestined you. His chosen treasure to be his child conformed to his son. To be conformed to his son. Three. Remember that at some point in your life, whether you may remember it or not, at some point in your life, God called you from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. He gave you that. Four, we've talked about it. Remember that the Spirit of God was given to you. God gave you an immeasurable gift. The Holy Spirit to dwell inside you as a seal of your salvation, to be given fully to you at the end of days in Christ to be revealed and our living hope to be fully revealed. Five, you can remember that you are acquitted of all your sins, past, present, and future. It is done. It is final. Rejoice and remember that. Six, remember that God not only gave you his Holy Spirit, but he did it in an overflowing way, in a way that he's present in you, in a way that he not only gives him as a promise to come, but also as the great Helper in times of need. That's what Jesus called him. He called the Holy Spirit. Helper. Seven. I know I'm going fast here, but like I said, I can get them to you later. Seven. Remember you have the hope of glory. 
Remember that at the end of the day, at the end of days, your eyes will see Jesus. Your eyes will see the one whom your soul longs for. You will get to experience everything that's been incomplete here, complete in Christ. If you know Christ, if you are one of his children, you have the hope of glory. And last, but certainly not least, if you're looking for joy, remember that God has given you promises in his word, and they are unspeakably great promises. Promises that are never broken. Promises that are always kept. Promises that can be seen time and time again. Remember these things. Savor them. Enjoy them. I could have four different messages for you on joy. This is just a very small snippet, but I pray that it's been encouraging to you. And I pray that as we look at these points, that we would be encouraged to follow Paul in looking at the rest of our lives through the gospel lens. We're going to see him do it time and time again. I'm going to pray for you right now that this would be true in your lives, and we'll wrap up. Lord, thank you for the gospel lens. Thank you for the worldview that we are given through Christ, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to look at all of our lives through the gospel lens, Lord. That we would look at um, the situations we have with families and with friends and with colleges and with work and with our time and all the things that are calling on us, Lord. I pray that we would look at all of them through the gospel. And that true priorities would happen that glorify you and build up your kingdom. That true passions would be formed in a way that stirs our souls and hearts to be affectionate towards you and who you are and what you've done. And Lord, I certainly pray that you would allow us the blessing and honor to have a small part in your work of having others across the world and other nations know the worldview of the gospel, Lord. To know that there is one creator God. To know that that God, while we are not with him because we have sinned, Lord, that that God, you have sent your son that we would be reconciled to you. That you would die for our sins and that we would be with you for all eternity because of it and that you would return, Lord. I pray that you would use us as a small part of teaching that worldview to the nations. And that as we look through that worldview, we would see our own situations in that light as well. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul and his life. May we continue learning from it as he writes to the Philippians. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.